Now, what's interesting about machine learning is that you no longer need to understand the how. You only need to understand the what. You understand what result you want to achieve. And that, I think, fundamentally changes the way in which we're going to be writing software. Listening to Innovators, brought to you by Wing Venture Capital. I am your host, Zach DeWitt. Today, we are joined by Peter Brodsky, founder and CEO of HyperScience. Put simply, HyperScience automates office work. Their software turns your documents into machine readable data. For example, If you're a real estate company that has to take physical copies of rental leases and have someone read them and manually put that data into a spreadsheet, HyperScience can fully automate that process and save your company valuable time and money. Earlier this year, HyperScience raised a $30 million Series B from the Stripes Group. I think you will greatly enjoy today's episode, as Peter is a brilliant CEO who understands both the limits and potential of AI machine learning. In particular, I think you will greatly enjoy the end of our discussion, where Peter talks about how ML will impact our broader economy. So, Peter, welcome. Please introduce yourself. I'm Peter. I'm the CEO of HyperScience. What what were you doing prior to founding HyperScience? I was working at SoundCloud. Uh, SoundCloud had acquired my previous company. So, had you always known that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I think in retrospect, it seems in many ways inevitable. But I don't think I knew it at the time at all. No, I think even after my first company, I didn't think I would do another startup. I thought we would be acquired and I would go on to uh, live a happy and productive life uh, in a big corporation. That obviously didn't happen. So what was your company doing that was acquired by SoundCloud? Uh, It was also an ML company obviously focused on very different kinds of things, mostly on DSP, but still very much a machine learning company like HyperScience. And your interest in machine learning came when you were at Cornell. I saw you started the PhD program there after undergrad. I'd always been interested in artificial intelligence. Being a child of the 80s, I was very heavily indoctrinated by Star Trek, the next generation, and wanted nothing more than to build Lieutenant Commander Data. Not so much the hardware part of that, but um, the AI part of it. And I thought at the time uh, when I went to grad school that I could learn something about the way the human brain works, or brains in general, honestly, and then apply that to artificial intelligence. That ended up being a somewhat fruitless pursuit. And uh, I dropped out after about three years and founded my first company. So take us back to when you're at SoundCloud after being acquired and how did you come up with the idea for HyperScience? And what was that process like? I think by the time we started HyperScience, my co-founders and I had been machine learning practitioners for the better part of a decade. And we had observed a tremendous amount of homogeneity in our work, regardless of what company or what project we worked on. We felt like most of the day we were not doing machine learning, but we were doing something called ETL. It's a process by which you translate data from one format into another. So you can imagine that your database stores customer names as first name, last name. My database stores them as last name, comma, first name. 
in order to use both databases, you need to write a little snippet of code that will translate between those two formats. If you think about a sort of a two by two matrix uh, where you've got job satisfaction on one axis and required domain expertise on the other, then that kind of work really lives in the death quadrant. It is something that requires high degrees of domain expertise, but delivers brain damage inducingly negative levels of job satisfaction. And so we wanted to automate our old jobs away. And that's sort of the funny thing about being a machine learning engineer, which is it uniquely qualifies you to automate the job of being a machine learning engineer in the way that, say, being a doctor doesn't remotely qualify you to automate the job of being a doctor. And so we thought, well, we'll just automate our old jobs out. And that's sort of how hyperscience began. Sort of as we zoomed out from that, we realized that companies that don't have an abundance of machine learning engineers they just do that transformation of data by hand. And that's really what data entry is about. It's about making data of all sorts of formats fit the arbitrary input requirements of arbitrary pieces of software. What is hyperscience? What's the core product? And talk a little bit more about uh, what it means to automate data entry. We are the automation company. We try and automate everything that you can do behind a screen and at a keyboard. And today, our first product focuses on automating data entry. Um, and for us, data entry is about looking at human-readable documents, which can come in a very large variety of forms. You can have a, you know, a hand-filled uh, form on a piece of paper that was scanned. You could have a purely digital document, like a bank statement that is rendered directly to PDF. You can have free text, like a Word document containing a lease agreement. All of those documents um, contain information that you often want to structure and input into some system of record. Today, that process is done by hand. People will read the lease agreement and extract you know, the monthly rent, the lease start date, lease end date, that kind of thing. People will manually read the bank statement to figure out whether or not the income that you reported matches with your bank statements, if they want to give you a mortgage. People will manually look at your miserable handwriting and try and figure out you know, whether or not they should open a, an account for you, like a wealth management firm. All that's done by hand. We automate about 90% of it. Wow, that's really impactful. And where, where do you begin to decide which verticals to work with? Or is it pretty horizontal and that there's you know, a lot of different industries and a lot of different companies that could work with hyperscience? We are primarily focused in terms of our outbound efforts on insurance, finance, and government. But we take inbound from all over retail, logistics, bakeries, in fact, uh, really doesn't matter. And who are some of your customers today that are using hyperscience? Uh, they are major world governments and global 2000 companies. So I'm picturing a room of, you know, 100 people that are just reading invoices and agreements that are coming in the mail and sitting in front of their computers and manually inputting this data. And with hyperscience, all of that can be automated. So those people can either be redirected to more high-value tasks. Is that, is that the right way to visualize it? I mean, we deliver on the three classic promises of automation. It's better, faster, cheaper. And you do that by automating things that are done by hand. And I think the image you have is exactly right. It is rows upon rows upon rows upon rows upon rows of people uh, sitting in what is effectively a silent call center with dual monitor setups. They've got the human readable document on one screen and the sort of template input on the other screen, and they literally just type verbatim what they see. We automate away 90% of that. So how big of a market is hyperscience going after? I mean, it, it seems like it's 
it's just a massive addressable market. I mean, I feel like every business suffers from this and is plagued by a lot of manual inputting and, and data transformation, data cleansing. It seems almost boundless, right? There's certainly a number you could put on it. The number that we've put on it is 57 billion. Uh, that seems to be about the right right size of the market. But as the product evolves, uh, the TAM evolves, and those two things are intimately connected in a cycle. So we both shrink and expand the TAM at different times, depending on the maturity of the product and obviously our ability to penetrate the market. What's been the most difficult part about building and also scaling hyperscience? Maybe those are two different questions. People. It's always people. Every single undertaking that requires more than three people, I think the greatest challenge always ends up being the people. You have to hire them, you have to retain them, you have to manage them. People are always the biggest challenge, I think. Yeah, if you looked at the cost side of your business, is the majority of the cost right now R&D, people costs, engineering costs? Uh, the majority of our costs are people costs, but uh, I don't think the majority of our costs are R&D costs. Uh, historically, that's certainly true. But as we invest in sales and marketing, uh, we might see a more even split. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of the companies we've talked to, initially, the majority of their costs are R&D costs. But as they scale, it becomes a more even balance to sales and marketing as they're doing more outbound selling. So, Peter, what, what types of artificial intelligence and machine learning are hyperscience using to automate all of these tasks we're talking about? I think like many startups seeing previously unimaginable levels of success where other approaches failed, we too are using a fair amount of deep learning. I think what's interesting about hyperscience is that we have a couple novel takes on uh, how to do exactly what we do. Uh, and I think some of those techniques uh, are highly defensible, highly valuable, and a part of the reason why we are able to outperform our competitors. And is that from insights that, that you've had throughout your career that, that trickles down? Or is that from a few key hires um, who are just some of the world's renowned experts in, in deep learning and have, and have approached it in a novel way? Well, inevitably, there's at least some truth to both. But at this point, we have a phenomenal team of people I certainly haven't contributed anything to the product in any meaningful way for at least at least two years now, which is always a good feeling. A bittersweet, if I'm being honest, but uh, certainly the the sign that we are moving in the right direction as a company. So how do you determine your product roadmap? Is it a mix of listening to customers and also knowing where you want to take it? It seems like a, that's got to be a, a really important part of your company's success is is defining a successful roadmap? Um, the roadmap is uh, a tricky question. It's a combination of imagining what we think the future ought to look like sort of over the long run and inevitably a, a large dose of customer feedback. Yeah, it's a combination. And how do you think about the competitors here? I mean, there's some big names in this space which are working on uh, automation but, you know, di different approaches. And it's a very hot space, too, in terms of the venture community and, and finance and activity. But, you know, how do you think about the competitive set and kind of managing where you guys sit in that competitive set? You know, it's an industry that is ruled in no small part by the incumbents. Big aging companies that own the lion's share of the market and have gotten comfortable with that. And consequently 
haven't innovated a tremendous amount in the last decade or sometimes two decades. Uh, so we generally don't think too much about the competition and are mostly focused on innovating, on thinking about what is it that's going to deliver value to our customers? How do we serve our existing customers better? How do we serve new customers that, that you know we aren't able to serve for one product reason or another? And when you're trying to win a new customer, what is that process like? I mean, obviously you have to do a, some sort of demo with them, you know, likely on their own documents. Do you go on site with them? Are you able to do demos remotely? What, what's kind of the onboarding and, and, and sales process like for Hyperscience? I think the onboarding part is fairly straightforward. We are a drop-in automated replacement for manual processes. Uh, we can have a customer up and running uh, literally within an hour. A week is more typical, but onboarding is, is the easy part of that story. Uh, the sales process is substantially more drawn out the way that you would expect large enterprise deals to be. Usually run somewhere in the order of six months from first making contact with the customer to signing a deal. But it's a pretty typical uh, enterprise software sales cycle. I don't think we're doing anything particularly unusual or novel on that front. Interesting. Are the government customers um, feeling some of the most acute pain? I mean, I was just thinking, you know, just filing even taxes, right? I mean, people are still sending in their printed out documents to the IRS. I mean, it's interesting because on one hand, you know, they have huge budgets, but on the other hand, they typically move slower than uh, more enterprise customers. So it seems, you know, it's, it's exciting that you're having success with them. Governments are a special bird. Obviously, the sales cycle there is pretty different. The way we meet them is different. So that's that's its own thing. And Peter, what's the big vision for hyperscience? Is it to you know be automating the workflow of, of every company to some degree? We are the automation company, like I said. So our goal is to automate more and more and more things. We think we found a good entry point, but there are some mass product updates coming up over the next quarter or two uh, where I think some of that vision will become more clear to the outside world. And what's been your experience in the fundraising process? It looks like you, you've raised a, a pretty substantial Series B recently, and you know, would love to hear from the entrepreneur standpoint what, what that process has been like. I've always enjoyed fundraising. I think it's an interesting opportunity to meet people that see a lot of different companies, including ones that may very well be competitive in one way or another, or at least related. And so you get feedback that you wouldn't otherwise get. You get sort of a very high level, very broad point of view that I don't think our customers have. And I think without investors, we ourselves wouldn't have. Uh, and so I, I always look forward to it. Fundraising can obviously be fairly time consuming, which can be a little frustrating, but I've actually found that if you do a little bit of prep, that prep is a good way to bring the team together focus our own thinking, and sort of a, a good time to do strategic planning that you would ordinarily do anyways. And if you're prepared, I think you can raise pretty quickly. Uh, we raised our round from start to finish in 30 days, went out on, I think, September 13th. And by October 13th, uh, we had a, a signed term sheet. So it's, it's, not, it's really not that bad. Like I said, it's incredibly useful. You get a lot of high value info. No, that's great to hear. And, and congrats. That's not easy to do to go out in, in 30 days and get a signed term sheet um, from an investor you're excited about. So definitely speaks to the quality of, of the product you're building, team you're building. So, Peter, how can our listeners follow the progress of hyperscience if they want to 
you know, either uh, join the team or potentially be a customer or, or learn more about what you guys are working on? Highly recommend checking out our blog. It's something new that we're doing. We haven't done a lot of blogging in the past. So this is exciting for us. I think most of our big, big announcements are going to be posted on that blog. Great. I'll make sure to put that in the uh, show notes. Um, so I wanted to ask you a few questions just about machine learning more broadly. Uh, and beyond the specific applications of hyperscience, um, how do you think machine learning and artificial intelligence will change our business economy more broadly? It's a tricky question to answer because part of the thesis of hyperscience is that there is a growing gap between the supply and demand for machine learning engineers and the vast majority of the few engineers that are qualified will probably go to one of three ML-centric companies in the world, which means that the remaining Fortune 497 will really not see the benefits of machine learning accrue to them proportionally. I think that opens up a lot of white space for startups that can attract machine learning engineers who, for one reason or another, wouldn't want to work at a big company to provide specific solutions, you know, AI-powered solutions that, that should exist. But like I said, things that can and should be automated probably won't be for a very long time because there's no one there to automate them. And so it's hard to know where startups will choose to focus their, their attention. But I think that the distribution of, of impact from AI is going to be very, very uneven for a long time to come. That's fascinating. If you don't mind me asking, which three companies were you referring to? Some of the fangs? Uh, Google, Facebook, and Baidu. Yep. Makes sense. What, what industries do you think will be most impacted by machine learning? I think to answer that question, you have to sort of have a meta view on what machine learning actually is. It used to be that people wrote software. You would specify exactly how a given task needed to be completed. You'd say, add these two numbers and store the results here. And then if the number is greater than some value, print it in green. And if it's not printed in red, step-by-step -step explicit instructions. That's how software used to be written, which meant that you as the programmer needed to understand how to achieve the result you wanted. Now, what's interesting about machine learning is that you no longer need to understand the how. You only need to understand the what. You understand what result you want to achieve. And that, I think, fundamentally changes the way in which we're going to be writing software. And so the least satisfying answer I can give you, but one that I think is also the most accurate, is that software is going to be the most impacted by machine learning. The way we write software is going to be radically transformed. And that's sort of what we're seeing today. It's a really fascinating space to follow. What are your thoughts on how many jobs will be replaced? I mean, you're, obviously, you're automating jobs very directly, which will be good. I mean, I think it'll uh, repurpose people to, to higher value and higher high value added jobs and roles. But what, what's your view on um, what it'll do to the labor economy? I think there's this story of how automation is going to destroy jobs. And I think there are two things that are true. From a moral perspective, I think that story is completely upside down. If you do any work, you inevitably, your work touches tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. And I don't think that your right to a job supersedes thousands of people's right to good service. 
your ineptitude at judging x-rays or CT scans doesn't mean that I have to die of cancer as a result. It's a morally upside down position to be taking. Yep. Interesting. And so that's, that's the first comment that I have. But the second comment I have is that the concern itself is wholly unfounded. In the history of history, we have not been able to make jobs go away. And technology has always been in the business of some degree of automation. The plow is ultimately a degree of automation. Instead of digging the fields by hand, you now have a plow that is pulled by some beast of burden. That did not destroy jobs. In fact, unemployment is at record lows, like historic record lows, uh, at least in America. I just don't see us all going to the beach and no longer needing to go to work anytime soon. And there's, there's a large part of me that says that with a degree of remorse. Uh, wouldn't it be amazing if we could automate all of our jobs and not have to work anymore? That has never happened. People have dreamed of it happening. And the fact that people fear that it could happen, may we only be so lucky. Uh, we won't be. We'll all keep going to work. Don't worry. Do you think it'll be possible to buy software in five years that doesn't have some form of AI or ML inside of it? I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, but at the same time, the same way that people don't really talk about... Do you remember when, when user interfaces were called GUIs, graphical user interfaces? Yeah, of course. Of course. Does your app have a GUI? be a question you'd ask. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't even know the acronym GUI anymore. There'll come a point in time where there'll be some amount of AI and everything because that's just the way software is written. Like I said, I think the industry that is going to be most transformed by AI is going to be software itself. Right. I mean, even, even just, um, you know, 10 years ago, everyone was asking, what's your internet strategy? Are you web-based? And, and now it's a given, right? Any, any software is web-based. Any software is a lot of software is mobile first. And it's interesting trying to think about AI or ML as a, as a framework and you know how it'll seep into every form of software in, in different capacities. So I think your, your commentary there is spot on. This is a question I'd like to ask our entrepreneurs, Peter. So what, what advice do you have for new entrepreneurs who are building AI-powered businesses? I think my advice to all entrepreneurs, regardless of whether or not they're building AI businesses or otherwise is don't. Startups are like drugs, just say no. They are merciless and brutal and will take absolutely everything and in the vast majority of times give nothing in return. There are a very small handful of reasons to start a startup that are good, but I think the best one is that you simply can't do anything else. And I think if you can do something else, you probably should. I think that makes a lot of sense. There's a culture now where everyone wants to start a company for the sake of starting a company. And I think we're in a fundraising environment where we're flush with capital and a lot of the ideas are getting funded and, you know, you see these success stories, but it's a grueling, grueling process. And I'm glad you gave that advice that if, unless you can really uh, feel that this is a problem, you can't work on anything else besides this problem and you're uniquely positioned to solve that problem, it you know, likely doesn't make sense to, to try to build something. So it's interesting. Just, just hearing you talk, do you think there almost more risk in being the first or second employee at a startup than actually being the founding team? Because you're taking the same business risk, but you have a fraction of the, of the ownership. Yeah, I definitely agree with that in many ways. It is easy to believe in your own delusions of grandeur as a founder 
uh, for you to be employee one, you have to believe in someone else's delusions of grandeur. And that is quite a leap. That said, uh, at HyperScience Employee One, you know, we got incredibly lucky. Uh, we have a company because of Employee One, a guy named Matt, that has been instrumental in various ways across the history of the company up until the present. I don't think he regrets his decision at this point. I think things have panned out well. But more often than not, you know, most startups fail, obviously. I also agree with what you said earlier, which is there's a strange culture of, of glamorizing startups, and they are decidedly not glamorous enterprises, certainly not in the beginning. Def, definitely not in the beginning. Definitely not in the beginning. That's, that, the, you have very low lows, and, but also you know, very high highs. But the first, the first year or two of a startup are grueling. I think that's, you know, that's really the test. But you know, it seems like you're out of the woods, right? You, you have great investors and a great product and sounds like a, a world-class team. And you know, you're working on a, a real problem that is probably going after one of the largest TAMs of at least anyone we've ever had in this podcast. It's exciting. And I think now, understandably, you know, the, the founders are glamorized. So, it, yeah, it's a long road, though. Well, Peter, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And as I said, congrats on, on everything that you're building and accomplishing. You know, wanted to give you an open-ended chance. Anything else that you wanted to tell our listeners or, or talk about or have an open mic for a minute or two? Well, I'll just respond to what, what you just said. We're not out of the woods. I don't think any company is ever out of the woods. You could be on top of the world one day and completely dead the next. Uh, I think the history of tech is littered with the broken bodies of, you know, at one point or another, phenomenally successful companies. BlackBerry, I don't know if you remember them, had the best smartphone on the planet. They don't really exist anymore. Nokia, similar story. They had the best phones available, and that, that didn't end well for them either. There are many, many companies that do well one moment and then fail the next. And I think every single company is always not too far from complete failure. You have to continue to innovate and deliver value to your customers to continue to succeed. I don't think you ever reach a point where you've made it. You reach a point where you get to keep going. But if you mess up, you know you lose, lose that privilege. I think that's probably where we're at. Well said. No, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, the best leaders are constantly paranoid, right? You can never you can never get comfortable. As soon as you get comfortable and slow down, that's when someone passes you or that's when you take a misstep. Well, Peter, I, I wish you the best of luck and you know, I wish you great success. And I think you're 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 off to a great start. So excited to follow the the progress at Hyperscience. And thank you so much for for taking the time today to to speak with me and, and, and tell us more about your journey. Thank you, Zach. The takeaways from today's episode are, one, hyperscience automates office work and is often better, cheaper, and faster than the human alternative. Two, when a customer signs up with hyperscience, onboarding can happen in just a few days. No waiting for weeks to get set up and see results. And three, software could be the industry most heavily impacted by artificial intelligence and machine learning going forward. Thank you for listening to Innovators. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I would greatly appreciate if you could share a podcast with one person who you think would greatly enjoy hearing about how the next wave of business leaders is using applied AI to reshape our business economy. You can reach me on Twitter at Zachary DeWitt or email me at Zach at wing.vc.